A mentionable contains depictions of domestic violence, sexual assault, suicidal ideation, and pornography. This podcast is intended for ages 13 and older. We recommend parents listen through before or alongside their child. Previously on Unmentionable. I get a phone call from the agent. We can't represent you. I'm trying to call people. No one's calling me back. My mom's like, what are you doing? That moment was the worst. How do I get another job doing porn? He calls me. The shoot went great. You're booked the rest of the month. Going to AVN, and I'm like, okay, I I work more than these people. How do I become the best? I was dating like an id girl. People were recognizing me and the girl I was with. Josh was being recognized as Rocco and even starts introducing himself as Rocco. I play Joey from Friends, Han Solo, Hercules, Sheldon. The industry was like parody crazy. I was the lead guy. I was shooting 20 to 25 times a month. I was comfortable with the directors. I liked that I was praised more than I enjoyed what I did. There, there's someone that I dated for a long time, like super well-known personality, and we're sitting in a restaurant with another couple, and that couple's both in the industry. Like everyone at the table, like works a lot, and you know he had worked with my girlfriend that week, and I'd worked with his girlfriend. Like all within the same week, we've had sex with each other's significant other, and we're on a date holding hands at a romantic, you know, dinner, like out, enjoying each other's company. Again, like suppressing reality, pretending that who we are and what we do is separate than what is reality. I'm your host, Lee Shelton, and this is Unmentionable, a journey through the life of a prodigal porn star and a look behind the curtain of a $100 billion industry. Chapter 4, Cardboard Butterflies. Over the last 70 years, extensive research on the brain has taught us that we still don't really know how the brain works in its entirety. We do know that different stimuli and drugs can change the chemistry of the brain in drastic ways, but we're learning more with every study that comes out. Porn is no exception to this. There's no shortage of studies that have proven the correlation between porn consumption disrupting normal activity, from work to school to personal life. And to see exactly how that happens, we're going to talk to some experts about the effects of porn on the consumer and ask the question, who's responsible for what? we see its impacts. Young people today, because pornography is inherently violent, they are learning that they're supposed to be violent when they're intimate. And we're seeing that in in news stories. We see over and over again examples of young people who are exposed to pornography at a very young age. That behavior escalates, right? Uh, we call that desensitization. When someone consumes pornography, just like when someone smokes a cigarette, at some point the brain wants more cigarettes more frequently. The same thing happens with porn, and there's research to show that. People need more more porn, more frequently, but the problem with pornography is they also need more extreme forms of content. This is Parker. He's the director for public outreach for Fight the New Drug, a non-religious, non-legislative nonprofit. They exist to provide individuals with data to make informed decisions regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects, using only science, facts, and personal accounts. And so that leads them to developing more extreme and violent content that impacts them in a variety of ways. And we see this in in news publications every day, right? There are stories of young people that they've been exposed to pornography and now they've sexually assaulted a sibling or a cousin, or now they have abused a classmate or um, something of that nature. And I would put much of the blame for that on pornography. They don't they, that's what they've been told is normal. They've been exposed to porn. No one knows they're being exposed this young for the most part. So no one's talking to them about it. And what they see is what they emulate. They see that pornography is violent. Okay, so girls like it when I'm violent and I'm aggressive and I don't take no for an answer. 
those are the things we're taught uh, for for young people. And there are issues for young women, of course, as well, right? Um, but some of the issues that we're seeing as far as like violence among young people, um, those are some of the things that we're seeing. Even as far back as the early 50s, researchers studying animals and insects have been able to observe differences in mating preferences as a result of stimulus that exaggerates certain traits. One of the first things that we like to to talk about when we talk about how porn impacts relationships is a study that was performed by Dr. Nicholas Timbergen. And he actually won the Nobel Prize for this research for discovering what we now call a supernormal stimulus. So in his research, Dr. Timbergen was analyzing butterflies. And he wanted to know what male butterflies found most attractive and eye-catching about their female counterparts. And when he thought he'd figured that out, he made some fake cardboard butterflies, but he exaggerated the features that he thought the male butterflies found most attractive. So he made the wings bigger, the colors on the wings brighter, and the shapes on the wings more exaggerated than anything that you'd see in nature. And when he let the male and female butterflies go in enclosure with those cardboard decoys, the male butterflies immediately tried to mate with these fake cardboard butterflies and almost entirely ignored the real female butterflies. I love you, Nora. Do you love me? Oh, I don't know, Jack. I'll have to think about it. And so he asked himself, what did I do? Because he was surprised about this. This isn't what he thought was going to happen. And he said, well, I created an artificial version of something natural, and over time, the brain preferred the artificial exaggeration to what was normal, natural, and healthy. And this behavior isn't exclusive to butterflies. We can see these patterns in humans too, especially when it comes to porn consumption. Everything in pornography, from the way people look to the reasons they connect with each other, are just as fake and counterfeit as those cardboard butterflies. And researchers today consider pornography to be a supernormal stimulus because individuals who consume porn over time can lose interest in real-life relationships or seeking out a partner or a current relationship and instead prefer to spend their time seeking out pornography, which is unfortunately unhealthy. Okay, so preferences change because of porn consumption. Sure, but everyone has their own tastes, right? Uh, generally, we see in the research that individuals who consume porn, they have a poorer relationship satisfaction, there's less commitment between partners, and there's even a greater acceptance of cheating when an individual consumes pornography. Um, now, y- you could say that uh, maybe people who consume porn just have poor relationships or they're less happy or there's a greater acceptance of cheating. Additionally, there was a study that followed couples over a period of six years, I believe. This was from Perry in 2017. And they followed couples for six years and they were looking to see what would decide if a relationship would be less happy in the future than it is today. And they found that pornography was actually the second greatest indicator that a relationship would suffer over time was when a partner is consuming pornography. When he's talking about this study done by Samuel Perry in 2017, he often gets asked, if porn is the number two indicator, what's the number one? It's actually really interesting. For whatever reason, the researchers in this particular study chose not to have, um, if the relationship was already unhappy at the start of the study, They chose not to use that as a control, right? So if they're unhappy here, it's pretty likely they'll be unhappy at the end of the study, right? Um, So the first greatest indicator is that a relationship's unhappy today, it's likely they'll be unhappy in the future. Second only to that, pornography was the greatest indicator that a relationship would suffer over time. Another study done by Samuel Perry in 2017 found that divorce rates tripled for women who started viewing porn, and divorce rates doubled when men started viewing. There are things that we want the freedom to pursue, that when you pursue them, you get stuck and you become a slave to them. This is Jonathan Pacluda, the lead pastor of Harris Creek in Waco, Texas. Somebody says, hey, I want the freedom to look at whatever I want to look at, to do whatever I want to do, to have in the privacy of my home by myself any kind of sex that I can have. And they do that and they don't realize they stepped into a trap or they they went, walked into a cage and they locked it and they can't get out now. So the thing they want the freedom to do, they don't have the freedom to stop doing. And that's humiliating. You scroll through the the suite of variety, you're you're you know, the, the porn addict is not a sex addict. Uh, they're they're not um, they won't do well in marriage. It's not like they're it's not like this thing that where you practice and you get better at it, you've actually conditioned yourself against monogamy. You've trained for variety. You're addicted to variety. 
And, and what you're doing is you're training your brain not to bond. So this, this synapse scenario where it's like, hey, I should experience release and bond to this one person for a lifetime, you're actually teaching it not to bond and, and to hunger for something else. A study done by Ariel Core and others in 2022 showed that problematic porn usage caused decreased levels of oxytocin, the hormone in your brain that causes strong empathetic bonds with someone else. And it increased pornography-related hypersexuality, the term used to describe loss of control over porn usage despite adverse outcomes. I know porn addicts who can't actually have sex. They can't actually experience intimacy uh, unless there's something on the TV or a magazine open on the bed. And, and like there's all kinds of dysfunctions that are born out of this scenario. Uh, a, a rather famous one is a guy who would masturbate through his adolescent years with his boots on in the back pasture uh, because he was embarrassed one day by his dad. And so he got caught. And so he would just go in the back with his boots on. And today as a, as a grown man and as, as an adult, he can't experience sexual arousal without his boots on. Another one that I'll hear is a guy who says, you know, what, what makes me sexually aroused is that if I'm in the shower and I look down at myself, and he's like, I'm not, I don't have homosexual tendencies. I don't even struggle with same-sex attraction. It's just that, that it, it, there's the bonding that has occurred has happened to me because I've done that for so long. Uh, that's, that was my object of focus for so long. So my brain has created these synapses to me. The more we look at the research and listen to real experiences of people who are addicted to porn, we see the circle of impact grow. What begins as a change in taste turns into something that affects couples who are dating and then even affects intimacy in established marriages. And the problem's getting worse as porn is introduced at a younger and younger age. The most recent studies are showing that age 11 uh, is the average age of first consumption, but that age seems to be getting younger and younger each year. This is Helen Taylor. She's the vice president of Impact at Exodus Cry which is an organization committed to abolishing sex trafficking and breaking the cycle of commercial sexual exploitation while assisting and empowering its victims. I'm told that the average age of uh, a child being first being given a smartphone is age 10. And we've had dozens of parents whose children were under the age of 10 when their child was first uh, exposed. And we know that the the impact on an eight-year-old seeing violent pornography is different to a 25-year-old. The, the development of the brain, we know that the prefrontal cortex of the brain isn't fully developed till the age of 25. Um, and so imagining a child's brain being hit by this content that is created to be visceral and violent and addictive and shocking, it's lighting up even a child's brain um, with all kinds of dopamine hits and, you know, it's where we get the word dope from um, is the chemical dopamine. And so many people that we've interviewed who were first exposed as children said to us, we didn't even understand what we were really seeing. All we, all we knew is that our, our little bodies, even children, um, were responding to this and it had an addictive impact. And pornographers, uh, and, it, and this kind of is a broader question around all of big tech, the type of content, whether it's the apps, whether it's um, pornography, they, it's created to, to be addictive. But the difference between porn and other types of drugs is that other types of drugs, you just need more of the same. But with pornography, it's the novelty factor. So children are viewing porn, but is the porn industry targeting children? Well, I would argue that by not having any age barriers, they are specifically putting out a welcome mat. Like, it, it doesn't take much to even put click if you're, I'm over, if you're over 18 or into your date of birth. I remember when Pornhub had this meme on Twitter a couple of years ago, and the meme was of Baby Yoda. And in Baby Yoda's eyes was the reflection showing the Pornhub logo, and the caption was, 10 minutes after my parents leave the house. And the exploitation doesn't stop there. When we visited L.A. with Josh, we wanted to hear from someone who could help us understand, how do you get drawn into this industry? And what's it like spending 10 years in the industry as female talent? We spoke with Alia. She's an advocate against human trafficking and sexual abuse in the industry. And like Josh, she spent time in the industry as a performer. I was 19. I had already been like in sex work. I'd been trafficked as a minor. Um, I was already a mom. I had my daughter when I was 18. I met this guy in the strip club up there. 
And now when I've talked to other performers, it's, it feels like a script, <laughs> really. <laughs> like, and I'm like, how did I fall for this? But at the time, it was the first time I'd heard it. Right. So it was, you're so pretty. What are you doing here? You have to be here till 4 a.m. Like, that's just not reasonable. Wouldn't you rather work on, like, a normal schedule for your child? What is it like having to get up when you go home? And... Um, like, all of those things made sense. This guy just told me, like, give my girlfriend a call. We can talk about it. It's not a big thing. And he had made it sound a little bit more like modeling. But when I called his girlfriend the next day, who was about my age, she was probably more like early 20s where I was 19. She was a mom. Um, she, she made it really clear what it was. She was not, like, trying to hide that it was porn. Just talking to her totally like any sort of guard that I had put up the fact that it was a woman who was my age who was doing this herself like got rid of any sort of reservations that I already had just like Josh's experience the voices in the industry promised her what she was deprived of in her upbringing Josh was promised stability and attention while Alia was promised safety and predictability for her and her child the way I try and describe that experience is like if you have a well-adjusted, most of the time, yeah. if you have a well-adjusted, well-resourced, supported human being, man or female, they're probably not going to say yes right. when somebody sits them down and, and tries to recruit them. But if you have someone whose experiences in some way made that feel normal, they're way more likely to say yes. Yeah. And so that was definitely what it was for me. And there's like an analogy that if you mm -hmm. put a frog in boiling water, mm -hmm. it's just gonna jump out. Yeah. You put a frog in a pot of water and you'd slowly turn it to boiling, it'll stay in there. I mean, that's so much of what the industry is, I feel like, you yeah. know, like just get your foot in, just get your foot in. Yeah. Then just one more step. Oh, well, that, maybe that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't right. great, but it wasn't as bad. And yeah, maybe I will go to that next step. Yeah. And that next step, that was the other thing about the industry that was like hard to let go of was I did find community. Yeah. That there was enough. It was, it was still very coercive. The community was used as a way to coerce, I would, I would say. But when you don't have a healthy idea of what community is, right. like coercive community is better than no community. Right. Yeah. There would be these like shoots that were like not what I had signed up for or violent. And then at the end it was like, you guys wanna go get some food? And like the, the desire to like kind of rewrite that narrative yeah. and gain control over the experience was like, oh, see, everything's fine. And it was nearly impossible to regain control over that narrative. I say nearly impossible because the only way to control your career is when you sell off certain things that you thought you'd never do. This is where the no list comes in talent in the industry start off with a list of things that cross the line. Anal sex, group scenes, violent behaviors, just to name a few. And as they spend more time in the industry and their fan base grows, those items on their no list become more and more valuable. And before you know it, your no list has gotten shorter and shorter until often there's no list at all. The ability to say no was already gone, yeah. right? That was something I definitely experienced. It didn't matter if it was industry-related, sex-related or not. Right. Like, the ability to say no to almost anything yeah. was, like, I wasn't capable of saying no to things. I knew girls who, like, had a strategic no list. Like, right. they, had, they had a thought of, like, this is how I'm going to make my name bigger and bigger, is I'm going to say no to this until it's with this other performer at this time, you know, and then I'll only do girl on girl with this performer at this time with this production, and I'm going to wait two years so that it's, like, people will, will like, want to watch it. But it was something that was talked through. And yeah. then I think it's taught through the industry as well. Yeah. Like when then my manager said, like you said you weren't gonna be able to do this, but they're offering this, I knew questions to ask, to be like, well, I didn't ever wanna do that, but like, how can you make this worth it for me? Or they'll wait until they know you're at a point of yeah. like total need that offer, having already having the money there, like a dollar amount or whatever it is to yeah. look at. That happened to me a lot when I would do the back and forth game, when I would leave the industry for a yeah. little while, and then it would be a call yeah. of like, well, we have this for you, but you would have to be willing to do more. You'd have to yeah. be willing to do interracial. You'd have to be willing to do anal stuff that you weren't willing to do before. Yeah. You'd have to be okay with that. Or even stuff like, I'm not gonna work with that performer. That was some of my, my no's was yeah. like, I won't work with that performer again, maybe right. if I come back. 
On set, the director is king. And it's not uncommon for the director to offer female talent a $500 bonus for sexual favors, recorded or not. The, the POV offerings or even just even just no camera offerings of like, yeah. do you want to make this little bit of extra money while you're here? Um, whether there's a camera or not, involved yeah. or not. Yeah. But I got a lot of like, don't get labeled as difficult. Don't get labeled as non-compliant. Like people won't want to work with you. If you're working with a producer and they're asking you to do something, it's like, is there a difference when the camera is off? Right. Are you going to get labeled as non-compliant if the camera's off? Yeah. And so, I mean, consent goes out the window yeah. in porn. There are a lot of companies out there working against you, your marriage, or your family. You've heard about them on this show, but here's one that is on your side our friends at Covenant Eyes. For over 23 years, Covenant Eyes has been the number one trusted software for Christians seeking to live a porn-free life. I know pornography isn't an easy topic to hear about, but it must be talked about. It's a silent killer. Porn is damaging marriages and families and impacting the work of the church by holding people hostage to this secret sin. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life or seen this in the life of someone you love. Victory by Covenant Eyes is a powerful tool that helps Christians who are serious about quitting porn or never stop starting to begin with. Victory combines industry-leading technology with decades of experience and leadership in recovery content, accountability, and behavior change. Victory software has a powerful built-in feature and an optional blocking technology, making it an unparalleled tool in the fight to live a porn-free life. Scripture teaches us the importance of being accountable. Proverbs 27:17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And James 5:16 says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So now let's talk about how the Victory app works. First, using the link provided in the show notes or by visiting covenanteyes.com and entering code BROOM30, you can download Victory on all your devices. Next, you'll find a trusted friend to be your ally. This is someone who can walk beside you through the ups and downs of recovery. Your ally will get push notifications of any porn use and reminders to have accountability conversations. The Victory app remains the hub for your recovery journey for you and your ally. You'll find biblical recovery-centric courses for yourself, your ally, and even your spouse. There's a conversation feature that allows allies to react to activity, ask a question, or send an encouragement or prayer request privately and within the accountability context. And remember, accountability is not others calling you out on your sin but others calling you up to the person you are in Christ. So what are you waiting for? Anyone can get started on their path to recovery for free by visiting covenanteyes.com and entering code BROOM30, B-R-O-O-M-E and the number 30, or by clicking the links in the show notes today. Josh had hit his stride. He was making friends, getting positive feedback about his performance and his scenes, and he was in a relationship with one of the most popular girls in the industry. But this fame didn't come without its downsides. When you reach a certain status, your critics only become louder. A lot of like the old guard, like guys who were in the industry who were like the established guys, like didn't really care for me. I worked in Miami a little bit. You kind of got to prove yourself. And a lot of times people will, will live and work in Miami for an extended period of time and then move to L.A. I didn't really do that much. If you understand baseball, like the minor league is like, uh, essentially you, you have to play against pretty good competition. And if you prove yourself to be good enough, then you're deemed good enough to play in the big leagues. And that's what uh, Miami is for the most part. They kind of like run and gun. They, they don't do things like they were done in LA. They generally don't. You know, they didn't get permits to shoot. They would do pickup scenes. They would be like filming like oral sex, like on the beach, in a car, parked in a parking lot, like things that you would absolutely get arrested for um, if the police showed up. And you, you didn't do stuff like that for the most part in L.A. There would be types of porn that would fall into certain niches or fetishes like BBW or you're, you're talking like a 20-year-old dude and like a 55, 60-year-old 
woman. And pretty much, if you take the person that can do any type of scene in any type of condition, and then you put them with an A-list girl that is incredibly popular, if you put that guy with that girl, then he's going to be able to get the job done. If there's a new guy there, like, you know, it's, it's called failing a scene. It happens a lot. And for the most part, like, Worst case scenario, like they would they would try to fake as much as they could to try to save the scene. But if if you failed your first scene or you failed multiple scenes, like you're done. <laughs> Miami was the proving ground. It's where directors pushed performers to their limit to see if they could make it in LA. For the most part, the the deal the director has is with the distribution company. And the way they did things was the director would initially like foot the bill for everything, for the talent, for the crew, for everything. And then he brings, you know, the edited product to the distribution company and they pay him for the deal. Sometimes they had like 12 movies a year, 20 movies a year, whatever. Um, But for the most part, the director has all the burden of the financials on him. So if the guy can't do the scene, you don't have a product. So if you're paying for lighting, sound, you know, catering, the girl, you're renting a house, you're, you've, you've paid you know, for a permit, you've done all these things, all those people are getting paid regardless of if this guy is, you know, able to maintain an erection or not. But the guy's not getting paid and he's probably never getting hired again because you just cost that director $20,000. So in Miami, it's almost like a proven ground. And it's like, there would be tons of guys that would eventually come out to LA that have proven themselves. Those guys are trusted because they've been put through the ringer. I only did like a few weeks, like here and there. Um, I never lived there. It was, it was almost like frowned upon like by a lot of the guys in the industry because I was on sets that like if you weren't like proven or if you weren't like the guy, you know, you didn't have any business being there because you got companies that make one movie a month. So if you're making one movie a month, that's five scenes. So if you're one of the five guys doing one of those scenes, you, you better be able to get it done. And for, mo- for the most part, like those companies like Wicked and, and companies like that, like all of the girls are contract girls. So, you know, these girls only do, you know, a few movies a year. So there's a ton of pressure on the guy. So the director, for the most part, no chance he's hiring a new guy to do these. But Derek vows for me and I had a good relationship with these directors. And I think that's what kind of set me apart is like, I was a normal dude that they knew that I was going to show up on time, that um, I took care of myself, that um, I was going to be kind and courteous to the girl. Like like all these things that you would say like, well, of course, you know, like who, who wouldn't? Well, most people in that industry are not. At this point in the industry, male performers were competing for every job. When I was in the industry, you're talking about like maybe 20 guys. That's their career. So like if it's only 20 and there's and there's only so much to go around, the top tier industries are hiring the top tier guys and they're paying them the top tier money. For like the Gonzo companies, like the smaller ones that are shooting a ton, they're paying guys like $150, $200. They're paying girls like, Four or five hundred dollars, in contrast to a penthouse or or whomever else paying twenty five hundred to five thousand for a girl, and you know around a thousand for guys. You're only shooting so many movies, and it's like sure, like you might could work for those companies fifteen to twenty times a month, but those companies are only hiring like five to seven guys. So all of a sudden, if because if they're hiring me, someone's not getting hired. So all of a sudden I start showing up on these sets and I hadn't really paid my dues and I was, the, you know, the new guy. There was some frustration there. Just a few years into his career, Josh was working with the same teams and the same directors on a consistent basis. And an onset conversation opened up a new door. I had a really great relationship with Penthouse. Um, so I, I shot with them as a performer all the time. 
and there was a director um, for Penthouse. His name was Cisco. Cisco started like asking me like, you know, questions around like different aesthetics and different like themes and stuff like that. And um, we weren't like close friends, but we would always like talk like about like what would be funny and dialogue or what would like look cool or what, you know, things like that. He actually said, well, like if you, if you wanted to, like, you know, you could, you know, write something up and, you know, bring it to me. And, and I was like, I'd love to. I wrote this script and it was a, it was, it was almost like a play off of, um, 10 things I hate about you. I just remember like writing it and like, him saying it was good and and then like you know working with the camera guys and like talking you know, like through the whole process and casting and um the the conversations like with my buddies like in the industry just like calling them it's like hey man are you available on this day or whatever and they're like what are you doing and i was like oh like i'm you know penthouse is letting me shoot this film so i got to cast it direct it write it it was legitimate in that um there was a creative process that I got to see unfold. Like, is it content that I'm proud of today? No, but it did allow me to tap into the person that I thought had died. Like, I, I loved doing it. The process of, like, writing the script, casting it and then writing it and then, like, building it to the people that, because I, I knew these people, what they were willing to do and how, you know, for the most part, like that's what a director knows. Like, what are they willing to do, and how much does it cost? It's like I I knew like nuances of these people's like personality and like things they actually liked and things they actually disliked. Josh had a fast growing reputation, and with the increased amount of eyes on him and his work, he felt things starting to get dark. What made things dark for me was when I was like fighting for some level of normalcy, trying to date girls who were in the industry and pretend like, you know, really suppressing reality in that, hey, we're in this monogamous relationship. So I was dating this girl. She was a contract girl. And it was so much easier to date contract girls because they only worked two or three times a month. She requested to work with me and they already worked a lot for that company. And we were gonna do a scene in this movie. So in a movie, there would be five scenes. And in one of the scenes, it was me, her, and then another guy. And then I had done tons of scenes like that. So it didn't like, in my mind, it was like, this won't be a big deal. But in real life, I had feelings for this girl and she was my girlfriend. So how do you separate your work from your romantic life when the two are so intertwined? It's, it's really hard to, if, like, if you haven't been in this situation, it's, it's really hard to explain in a way that sounds rational. But, like, in your mind, <laughs> you're in a monogamous relationship, even though the person's job is to have sex with other people for a living, and so do I. Astronomically more, because I'm, I'm having sex 20 times a month, not very often with the same person. So 20 different people a month. Which in any normal relationship would be a deal breaker. But for Josh and his girlfriend, it was just business. We're going to do that scene, and I don't think much of it. And we do the lead up to it, and then it like starts to unfold, and I walked off set. Because it got like, it was weird. I genuinely had feelings for this girl. And I was like, I can't do this. They started kissing, and I was like, eh. I tried to play it off as cool as I could, where I was like, I, I just don't, I just don't want to do this. If you're in the studio, you have to be quiet because they're rolling. You know, it's like just like being in any other studio. And I could hear people having sex with her. It wasn't weird until I thought about it. Like we went there together, and then like rode home together. And I was like back and forth. I'm like, why would, why would this bother me? Shouldn't this not bother me? Or should I like this? Like, why does this bother me? That was the beginning of this like inner conversation, this inner turmoil of me trying to separate me as a person, Rocco Reed as a person, my relationship with 
people in real life and my relationship with people on set. And there were four different girls that I dated throughout the time in the industry. And a lot of situations like happened like that. And like even myself, like I did some messed up stuff. And Josh continued to do everything he could to justify the increasing conflict in his life. And then 18 months before my last scene, there was a moment where I remember there was a, a threshold. Once I crossed, I felt like there was no going back from. And mentally, I was spiraling out of control. So at this point, I had the place that I was living. She had um, a place where she lived. And um, we had a condo that was ours. Like once you do so much stuff, like you become numb to it. I mean, like anything. You 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 drink three beers. You be, you all of a sudden you need four or five to fill a buzz. You know, you you will mentally and physically adapt to just about anything. And if you're searching for a stimulus or a level of dopamine. Um, you're going to need more of whatever gave it to you in the first place. Fetishes work like that. And when you have sex with different people all the time in a relationship, either like the normalcy of just normal sex is enough, but not always. And sometimes like you'll, you'll end up doing just like bizarre things. And for her... She wanted to talk about other people. And I was fine with it if it was fictitious. But then she wanted to talk about, like, scenes that she had done, like, that day. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Then I was thinking, like, gosh, you know, I'm I'm being, you know, a pansy or whatever. You know, it's like, what? Like, this shouldn't be a big deal because it's happening anyway. Um, and, and it's something that she wanted to talk about. Once I rejected what was true and was willing to subject myself to pain to seem like that was okay. It put me in this place where I wasn't okay. And I became moody and insecure and like sporadically like angry and depressed and like that relationship, it was like intense, but very toxic. She's telling me to get out of the car in the middle of nowhere, you know, and I take a cab home. And by the time I get home, like we pretend like nothing happened. There was no ignoring the toxic chaos this time. All roads back to normalcy seemed long gone. And Josh had to come to terms with a very heavy truth. Once I surrendered to the, the real boundary that I had, All of a sudden, I had none. And then, like, really nothing mattered. And it was just like, I felt like... After that, I became, like, pretty insecure. When I was, like, working, I felt like I needed to take, like, more Levitra or Cialis. Like, sometimes I would take both. And then, like, I wasn't always, like, someone who would, like, do Caverjack, but then I, like, started using it. And, you know, I was, take, I was taking, like, steroids, HGH. I was, like, searching to, like, feel something. And also, I was so insecure. It felt like I had lost, like, all control over some of the things I had control over. To be clear, a lot of people who were, are in the industry that are like married to someone who's in the industry, it's like, you know, if, if I'm good friends with this person, I'm not going to work with this person. Like, you'll say that, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, I got on set today, I'm scheduled to work with this person, what do you want me to do? It's like, ah, oh, we'll just do it, it's not a big deal. And 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 then you, you do the thing that's not a big deal, and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> tomorrow happens, and then on the other side of tomorrow is real life. And you're at the gym working out with a guy that just had sex with your wife. 
and pretending like it's not a big deal. And all of a sudden you find yourself like struggling to look them in the eyes because in the back of your head, you know what is true. And this truth never gets talked about. In an industry that's too taboo for polite society. No one talked about it. There were so often these progressions where a girl would come into the industry and she only did girl, girl. And it's like, it's so interesting because like if a girl, if a girl came into the industry and she only did like print and only work with girls, like you would not even really consider her in the industry. Like someone could do that and live a somewhat normal life. But often that the girl who would only film with girls, not a lot of studios only film girl-on-girl content. So you'd be on set with guys. And a lot of those girls were gorgeous. Well, all of those girls were gorgeous. And the guys would hit on them, or you would be in the same place, and then they would start seeing a guy who was in the industry. As Josh got deeper into the industry, things started to make less and less sense. But what did become clear was that money was king. The industry would turn one yes into a career full of compromise. It's like a progression of like the like the physicality where it's like, are you okay if like he smacks you on the butt and then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're tied up and ball gagged and, you know, beaten with things and you can't work the next day or like it's a it's it's common language where I worked for kink yesterday so I won't be able to work for the next week or if you show up to set it's like well we have to stay away from this certain shot because I've got bruises in these certain areas because I I worked you know with this specific person who's super rough or I worked for this specific studio and did this specific type of scene a girl a girl gets a different rate if they do anal if a girl's normal rate is 1500 maybe their anal rate's like 25 like and that's i mean that's a very popular person for some girls it's like a difference of like a thousand to twelve hundred this is a, a real story this person used a toy on this girl and like vaginally she's torn so so you don't have to pay me my rate. I just really need to work today. Like that conversation would happen on set and no one would raise an eyebrow. It's like, oh, okay, no big deal. And then the new girls that don't know better, like you show up to set and the director tells them, well, you're going to give me a blowjob in this back room. I have my own site. So it's not, it won't go in this movie, but it'll go on my own site or it'll be BTS. It'll be, it'll be additional footage. So the girl will give the director a blowjob before the set, and then he'll maybe film it, and then give her, you know, four or five hundred extra dollars. And that, that all seems whatever on the up and up, but if the girl refuses to do it, big deal. And then she's not going to get hired anymore, and she's labeled as difficult to work with. And someone that shows up the set and to say, like, well, oh, I, I don't do... X, Y, and Z, or I don't feel comfortable doing X, Y, and Z. Like that that language, like that's that's gonna like upset people and and not get you hired anymore. Because that's not how you talk on porn sets. And this wasn't anything new. In fact, there was a specific process that Josh's agent, Derek, would follow in an attempt to convince talent to chip away at their no list until there was nothing left. If a girl's never done anal before, the first time she does anal, she's going to get a ton of money to do it. Or the first time that she does an interracial scene, if she's never done an interracial scene, she's going to get a ton of money. Girls that will come in the industry and say, well, you know, I, I don't want to do this. And then the longer they're relevant and they don't do that, there's a desire from an audience for them to do the thing they haven't seen them do. Then there's a value to the, for the studio to create the uh, the desired product that the audience wants. And then Derek knows, well, that's going to put money in his pocket. So he would go to a few of the studios and say, how much would you pay to have this person do that? Okay, highest bidder, great. He's going to go to the girl and say, hey, I haven't been getting a lot of calls. Even if he has, 
I haven't been getting a lot of calls, not getting booked a ton recently. Even though you worked a little bit lately, I haven't you know, got any bookings for you in the upcoming future. And I think it's because you haven't done this. And there's actually a studio wanting to pay you X amount of dollars to do that. And if you do it, you'll become relevant again. You'll become popular. And, and you know, studios are going to want to pay you to do that. And what do you think? I think it's a great move. And they do it. And once you do it, it just becomes another arbitrary thing that you do, that you get paid four or five hundred more dollars than you normally get paid to do. This wore heavy on Josh. Even with all the money he had made, the small compromises began to pile up. Even with his girlfriend, Josh had made so many compromises that he was no longer able to bear the weight of it all. Like met her family, wanted a life like with her. It was really a desire to have something that I didn't think... I could ever have. Pulling back the veil and seeing like what was happening in her life. Once she started doing like crazier things, it just like any and everything was on the table and she just ran with that. That messed me up. And then we broke up. And after breaking up with his girlfriend, what was once fun, effortless, and a rewarding challenge suddenly lost its meaning. I just like hated what I was doing. I just hated it. Like, every day I was on set, it was just like, I don't know. Like, you, it's, it's like six years isn't that long, but, like, you, you see the progression of people dying, like, you knowing people and then, you know, trying to do something. People who left the industry that, like, tried to do something else and, like, couldn't. Just sad, you know, like, people who wanted to, like, start businesses or try to do this or try to do that. It just seemed like you were just surrounded by people who were just like lost and broken and hurting and randomly you hear about another person committed suicide, like such and such, like got murdered, such and such, died at this party. And just like I just got tired of doing like the same old thing. Like even like, it's weird to say because like some people, like maybe the person hearing this thinking like how could you get tired of like going and getting paid thousands of dollars to have sex with people. Man, the fun, like raging party that you felt like was going to be the best time ever and maybe you had fun while you were doing it. Um, you, you wake up to a hangover and you're dehydrated and uh, you probably did something that you shouldn't have. And those things have real consequences. And just like thinking about that mindset and doing that thousands of times over six years where real interactions with people leave real mental and emotional consequences like in your mind, in your heart, in your life. Doing that in front of people, becoming a product, like literally becoming a product, becoming someone who can have sex with anyone, anywhere, you know, climax whenever they're told like be like being able to do those things like in the industry they're seen as an as a as a value add you know they're, they're seen as being impressive but reality you can you can climax whenever a person holding a camera tells you you can that's pretty twisted and having that being a normal occurrence in your life has a very real impact on you I was just so tired of it. I believed at the time, well, there's nothing else I could do. There was really only one relationship Josh could look to for some semblance of camaraderie. So there was a guy that lived with me for a period of time. He was super successful in Miami. He came out to L.A. and signed and um, was doing well. And he lived with me for a short period of time. Uh, he was from Tennessee. You know, a good old boy. Remembered everyone's first name. Always want to, you know, buy your drinks, pay for your lunch, like that type of guy. Just super good dude. Like we, we would have these conversations where like all he wanted to do was like make as much money as possible. And he didn't really know like what he wanted to do with that money. He just knew like he thought if he had a ton of money, like his life would be set up going forward and he could do whatever he wanted. So like really he was trying to get finance to buy freedom, but 
it really didn't have a cap. But him and I, like, would watch football together, go eat wings together, stuff like that. And I just remember several times we would hang out sometimes on the, the roof of our building, and I would think, man, what if I just jumped off this building? Then I was like, oh, it's, I don't think it's high enough. You know, it's only like four or five stories. I don't think I would die. And I, and I started like thinking that way often. What, what would it be like if I were to do it? How would I do it? Really started isolating myself. Like he, like he was like big time extrovert, like always wanted to be with people. What I would do was the opposite. I even didn't like working out with people. I would do any and everything I could to avoid anyone asking me how I was, what my plan was for the day, or what I'm doing in the future. That behavior escalated. I would do anything to isolate myself. Whatever is in isolation and in darkness grows. So these thoughts of self-harm, these thoughts of hopelessness, they grew. The success Josh was experiencing was being driven solely by his increasing tendency to disconnect and numb each part of his life. What made life miserable is what he was best at. What created so much turmoil inside was the only source of praise from the outside world. And while society is increasingly more accepting of porn, Josh is trying to decide if this is something he wants to be a part of anymore. It's like every time I worked, I was just so, so disconnected. As soon as I got there, I was like frustrated the whole time I was there. Let's hurry up and get this over with so I can get paid so I can go. Then I won Performer of the Year. Next time on Unmentionable. I, I was like really trying to like stack cash. Like when, when I made a million dollars, like I was tracking that in a notebook, like winning awards, making money, like doing all this stuff. Fraternity brothers and my mom, we would have a, a good conversation, we would catch up, and then it would always get to, how long are you gonna keep doing this? Unmentionable was written by Lee Shelton, Jacob Jolly, and Tyler McKinney. Directed and hosted by Lee Shelton. Art direction by Jacob Jolly. Kathleen Terrell is our production executive. Edited by Tyler McKinney and assisted by Jacob Jolly. Original score and composition by Tyler McKinney. Special thanks to our guest, Parker Hymas, Jonathan Pakluda, Helen Taylor, and Alia Azariah. This episode wouldn't have happened without Alex Lewis, Craig Dennison, Tim Ross, Justin Motes, and of course, Joshua Broom. Thank you for trusting us with your story. Unmentionable is a production of Compel Studio. Christian media tends to make neat, sterile content wrapped in a pretty bow. Too often we shy away from the real, the uncomfortable, and the disquieting. At Compel Studio, we don't believe that sweeping these subjects under the rug is helping. We're creating content that doesn't avoid these tough subjects, but leans into them. Exposing darkness and discussing things that we desperately need to. In scripture, we see Jesus boldly confronting uncomfortable topics. His words provoke and challenge the status quo. And we believe it's time for content made by Jesus followers to do the same. If you believe that too, you can join us and sign up for updates on all our future releases by going to compel.studio.